I know that I have mentioned in the past that I'm not really that interested in going to space, but actually I feel like I might change my mind if I can quit my job and then 15 days later go to space as well. So let me know, David, what you think about that. If you're going to be able to give me the money to buy Jeff Bezos's extra seat on that flight, or if I can quit my job and then just like do that really quick and then come back or like what the deal is, but I wouldn't mind going to space with Jeff Bezos. Anyways, this is the Hacker Noon Podcast, and my name is Amy Tom. Today, I am joined by Yaz Graham, who is the solutions architect at LaunchDarkly. Is that right? Hello. Solutions a architect. architect. A solutions yes. architect. We did it again. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, right. this is round two for you on the Hacker Noon Podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me back. And so today I want to ask you a bit about bugs. So I know last time we talked about feature flags and a bit about your career, but I guess, can you let, can, I'm not a developer as I've mentioned many times mm-hmm. in the past, but I am curious about learning more about bugs. And I guess I'm curious too about how you've gotten this domain expertise in bugs and what your interest in it is. So it, it, it's something that came out partially because as I get more experienced as a software engineer, and as, as I said last time, I think this is a, a typical journey for software engineers, is that you go from being frustrated when something doesn't work to being amazed that anything works at all, because you see the huge amount of complexity. And this complexity is only going getting greater and greater with each passing year. We see systems being on top, built on top of systems, on top of systems. There's so many increasing layers that are involved in every system now because there's so much interoperation between different ones, right? You have these days when you build apps, you're using APIs that talk to multiple services on the internet. You're using libraries on top of libraries on top of libraries, just building like your average Node.js application, you pull in like 5,000 libraries when you do NPM install or something because everything's on top of everything else. And the thing, bugs are a fact of life with software engineering. And what happened with me is that I got fascinated with debugging because I came to realize that there are aspects of debugging that most engineers are not taught and in fact are given directly bad advice about how to debug. Mm-hmm. What I think is that much of it is very opinionated and certainly this is all going to be my opinion, uh-huh. but I think that there's a lot of stuff here to, okay. to go into. I think it was, but also seeing that bugs themselves are fascinating. And to me, I think there's something that happens for many of us, which is we enjoy interesting surprises we enjoy the kind of oh it turns out that actually this thing you thought was true is false there's this bizarre other thing and bugs are when are are being confronted with that kind of turns out every other minute right in you think your code is going to work a certain way and it turns out it does something different but then when you see the effects of bugs on a wider scale or that manifest in really weird ways it's fascinating. You get, it becomes a new kind of natural phenomena, right? It's a new kind of environmental phenomena in, in the same way that kind of rains of frogs. There have been times in history where there has been a shower of frogs on a village that 
just this is an act of God. And no, it turns out that there was a tornado or something that managed to pick up, a, traveled over and picked up a huge amount of frogs or fish and then later on deposited them over a village. And it's a culmination of a whole bunch of weird events happening together. And mm. bugs are like that. Sometimes you get <laughs> these amazingly fascinating and hil sometimes hilarious, sometimes tragic stories. But ultimately, it's something that we need to bear in mind because I think that quite often engineers so we start off with that feeling that uh, frustration when something doesn't work because you have the, ex the expectation that you understand how the system works and therefore it should work. And it's annoying when it doesn't. And to many of us being, and I'm still consider myself after 20 years in the industry, an intermediate programmer, um, at best, is we need more humility around it because the, the chances are that something won't work. And if it looks like it's running fine now, it's mainly because you haven't hit the bug yet. And so being more careful about this mm. and understanding the different ways that bugs manifest is vital. As a and developer, hilarious. yeah, as a developer, <laughs> could you point the finger to someone on your team and say that bug was you? Sometimes you can. Uh -huh. Often you can. Taboo? Or do people, are you looked down upon for making too many bugs? Or what's like dev culture like around that? These days, fortunately, there has been a movement to what's known as a blameless culture, which is not, a lot of people misinterpret as saying that nobody ever gets blamed. And that's not true. You can have people who are bad or, or at least bad not themselves bad, but do bad work bad coding, consistently yeah. and they should not be doing it. But the idea, the good thing about a blameless culture is that the idea is that you're continually learning. Everybody is continually learning and everybody is dealing. You assume best intent on the part of everybody using the system. And in the case of a horrifically complicated system, there are so many ways that things can go wrong. And most bugs are the result of entirely understandable misconceptions. We have, you have one of the bugs that I demonstrate when I'm teaching software engineering to people who join our company. And I do a very quick primary in software engineering um, to, to all employees, including because only a third of us at LaunchDarkly are actual software engineers, but we're all working in the software industry and we make a product that is used by software engineers and other people as well. So it's, it's important to understand the basics of software engineering. And to do that, you need to understand why software engineering is so complicated and it is so complicated. Start somebody off with a Python program. I demonstrate a really simple few lines of Python code that implement a bank account. I use a floating point number to store uh, dollars and cents. So I say you add, I don't know, I, I put, I add a dollar to the bank account. So it goes from zero to one. Mm. And then I add 0.2 of a dollar. So 20 cents. And then I subtract a dollar. I think I can't remember the exact sequence of events, but, and then you print the value of what's in the bank account and it should be 0.2, right? It should be 20 cents left. And what it actually shows you is 0 0.199999. And the reason it does that is because of the way that floating point numbers work in computing. But ultimately the reason is that your conception of how something works in the computer is different from how it ultimately works. And those tiny differences, those little edge cases, most of the time that would work fine. But there's a sequence of different kinds of computations you can do with floating point numbers where it will produce something that is not properly rounded. Mm -hmm. It's a surprisingly common thing. And it turns out this is exactly the kind of bug that ended up killing about 30 American soldiers during um, 
the original Gulf War in the 90s with the Patriot missile, where it had something in the guidance system that was using floating point numbers the wrong way. And if you ran the system for too long, its targeting would go off enough that it would literally miss the missile thing it was aiming at and accidentally hit people instead. Ah. Um, and so we have these very simplified ideas of how systems work. The horrific side of the bug. <laughs> exactly. And things like this. But that's a really simple technical one. Quite often the bugs come from a, a higher level misunderstanding of, of how users are actually going to use the system and how they do actually use the system. Yep. Um, and this bug can happen not at the code level. It can happen at the design level. It can happen mm -hmm. at the product level. What's an example yeah. of a more lighthearted bug, perhaps? So, oh god, I've got I so many you, of these. I feel like you have a like a database of bug knowledge in your mind. I and do I'm ready because to open I started it collecting. It's not a great database. I, I confess it, 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 it's very <laughs> leaky. But my favorite, one of my favorite funny stories. So I, I spent five years working at Linden Lab, which is the company that creates and runs Second Life, which is a three D virtual world. Now, virtual worlds and games have some of the funniest bugs, right? Because they're trying to model in some ways a real world. And then bugs mean that things happen that are, are so unlike the real world, they are completely yeah. hilarious. So one thing that happened in Second Life, so it is Second Life itself is not just, it, it, people think of it as a game, but it's not, it's a platform, right? You can't actually win or lose in it. And there's real economy. There's a floated currency that floats against the dollar. So Linden dollars, which are the in-world currency, there are people who literally make an entire living off Second Life businesses where they produce things in Second Life and they sell them and it makes them enough money to live. So there are all kinds of different products and one of them was the, the virtual pets or breedables. So one kind of virtual pet and the, the model is for these things is very much like the Xerox model of get the printer but pay for the ink. And in this case it's get the virtual pet but pay for, pay for the food to keep this thing alive. And this was this beautiful kind of Arabian horse that, that, that somebody was selling and the, it was very expensive and the people have these horses and the idea was you have the horse you put the food out and the horse then makes its way to the food and eats the food and that's how it stays alive now one day we and uh, linden lab pushed a very tiny change to the physics engine that did this you see where this you may i love telling the story and seeing people jump ahead and they realize what's going to happen beautiful um tiny change to the physics engine that changed the friction of how objects move along the ground mm-hmm now, the way that the horse found the food is by using what in games is called a pathfinding algorithm, right? Where you've got a bunch of objects around in the environment and you need to be able to make a path to get to the thing you want to get to, right? Now, unfortunately, the pathfinding algorithm was using the old friction to power the horse. So, it put, so what would happen is that horses literally started sliding past their food. And... Sometimes they would slide so far, they would slide off the in-space platforms they were sitting on and disappear into space. I imagine <laughs> them kind of whinnying and pirouetting as, as they go, these horses flying off. These and beautiful sounds Arabian hilarious. horses <clears throat> and, disappearing and sounds, into the abyss. <laughs> well, exactly. Imagine this rain of horses instead of frogs flying off. And this, I should say, this sounds hilarious because it is. It's absolutely hilarious. Unfortunately, it was also literally tens of thousands of US dollars worth of merchandise that was virtually disappearing because of this bug. US, tens of thousands of US dollars worth of virtual horses. 
And our QA team, our server QA team literally was up all night rolling back server states to rescue <laughs> virtual horses from starving to death. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's so good. This, and this wasn't wow. even the, the, there's another one. There's one that to me, that we had great bugs in Second Life to do with virtual world and misbehaving. You can do, you, you can accidentally, we literally had a bug that took us years to track down in which people's avatars would, for no reason we could understand, suddenly bend over and stick their own heads up their behinds. Oh, it took you years? Yes, it took us years <laughs> to understand why this was happening. Who because did that? it was really rare, right? <laughs> but when you have enough people using the system, it means it happens every day and they complain about it. And then once you go in, the, all the evidence is gone, right? And so <laughs> you need to, this is part of the problem of debugging is actually capturing something in the act. Okay, uh -huh. this is one of the hardest things because you want to be able to, to observe the system when it's happening. Um, <laughs> This is why, for example, I'll give a shout out to my friends working on observability, such as Honeycut, why this stuff is so valuable, because you're accumulating the actual data points that you can use to debug the system rather than the effects. But there was one, and to me, I love this story because it's a potted history of computing in one bug. The update system had a client that you would run on your computer, and it would have a built-in update system where it would download a new version of the software when there was one and update it. Unfortunately, it was a really... It was a really hacked together update system. It was not well built. And what it would do is it would literally just call up a URL. The code would call up a URL on the web from our server and download whatever it saw there and then run that. Because what was meant to be there was the new version of the software, right? Unfortunately, one day there was a server misconfiguration. And if you access that URL, you actually got a 404 not found error. Unfortunately, the software did not check what it was getting, did not validate what it was getting. So it downloaded this 404 page and saved it as an executable program and then tried to run it. So this is on Windows and Windows normally has a way of if something should look like an .exe, like a .exe file. But there is an older, from the history of Windows, Windows is based on DOS. And in DOS executables were called .com files. This is from the 80s. And unfortunately, they didn't have a particular way they started. It could start in any way. There was no real way to check. And Windows, when you told it to run this program, it didn't actually check what it was running. And so it would run this 404 page as if it was a program, mm -hmm. right? Because binary data can be interpreted any particular way. If you say this is a web page, it'll try and load it as a web page. If you say it's a program, it will try and interpret it as instructions to the processor. Yeah. Okay. Now, if you did that with this 404 page, what it turned out it actually meant is it would open the printer port and then spew a whole load of garbage to the printer. Now, if it was a decent printer, it would check what it was getting. You may notice a pattern here of not checking things correctly before doing stuff on them, which is a continual problem in software. We tend to make the assumption that things are going to be okay mm -hmm. when we get data. And when they're not, that's how so many bugs happen. A huge class of bugs is in, and security holes, is in not checking what you're getting. Mm -hmm. And in this case, most printers would reject it, but a few of them would go nuts. And in one case, at least one case would physically break. So there was a version of Second Life that would download a new version itself, failed, and then break your printer. Like, as in you had to throw the printer out. It was gone now. 
<laughs> right? Oh and my the, gosh. The, the thing is, is, this is what I talk about houses of cards, in that we're talking, uh, this systems is something that involves systems. a web mm-hmm. failure. This involves a Windows, DOS, history of printers. Everything occasionally comes together in exactly the way that both works yeah. Really badly. Yeah. You know. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, And so let's talk about why it takes so long for bugs to get fixed. This mm -hmm. is my assumption. Uh, being a non-developer is that it's it must be a chicken and in the egg scenario where upper management says you've got to go faster to please the shareholders and do more features and so the old ones just don't get fixed you just keep going is that accurate uh, somewhat i the thing is it, it's that's a very common story and i don't think it's a continually true one i think it's often true I mm-hmm. think there are many bad bugs that have happened because of that. I think the nightmare bug, which we should v- visit later if we have time, is a great example of that, where, where upper management pushed and then ended up destroying the company with a bug the because there was just too much pressure. And we've seen that with other systems like the Challenger disaster. We have this with physical failures as well, engineering failures. There's an amazing book I strongly recommend called Inviting Disaster, Lessons from the Edge of Technology by a journalist called James Childs, C-H-I-L-E-S, which is one of the best books on technology failure I've ever read because it's mm. full of brief stories that are really well written and and management failure, technology failure. And it's always multiple things failing. Most systems are resilient to be able to handle individual failures. It's when two failures happen at the same time in different ways that things really start to go wrong. Um, in this case, when are talking about bug pressure and in terms of the pressure on engineers to not spend time of fixing bugs. There is a degree of that, but also I think there's many other things to blame as well. I think our tools are terrible. I think software mm-hmm. engineering tool tooling, our programming languages, our debuggers, our runtimes, our systems, everything should be so much better for debugging. Everything is based on the idea that stuff should generally work. And this is not true, right? Most, we it's true that good systems tend to work the way they're meant to, the majority of the time but when that time is so great right when you're running systems for years there's going to be thousands well thousands of edge cases where things and sometimes those failures can be really minor and aren't worth fixing and some of the times they can ruin people's lives there was a bug in so i got involved in government for a while i was in the u.s government and this was shortly after i was in an amazing group called 18f that was about revolutionizing how government does technology and the great store technology failure story of the past decade is healthcare.gov obamacare and how it was initially a failure and then a whole bunch of tech people jumped in to save it and it became a success now the stories of what i had what they found were horrific and one of them which i think i'm free to say because i was not there and i'm not going to attribute anybody is that families would sign up and try and register for healthcare.gov and there would be an error that told them to come back next week. And they'd be queuing up at hospitals or places to do this sign up. And they'd be told to come back next week. A lot of the time, the bug that the code wasn't again treating input properly. And in this case, there was a bug where it wasn't handling apostrophes in names. Now, apostrophes in names are a really common thing, but programmers are really bad often at handling edge cases and thinking through edge cases, especially when they're on a tight budget or they're working for a contractor or something. And government work, unfortunately, has a 
bad reputation, mainly because of contractors and people just trying to get stuff good enough for government work. That's where the phrase comes from. In this case, they weren't checking the input correctly and errors were causing, apostrophes were causing errors. But even worse, it wasn't just that. It was that the error wasn't being escalated correctly. So instead of the error being reported in a way that says this has an apostrophe in it and there's a problem, we can't handle apostrophes. It was just saying something was catching all of these errors and just going, the system must be down somewhere. Just tell them to come back next week. And so these <laughs> poor families were coming back week after week trying to get health insurance to live. Uh... Okay. This one bug, which wasn't being reported properly, properly. It's not just, I really want to be clear about this as well, because a recent passion of mine is error messages. And it's amazing to me how many fewer bugs there would be and how much easier they would be to fix if error messages were better. There are programming languages now. Elm is an obvious example. It is one, a little known front end language that this one guy, Evan Zaplicki did and still does. And one thing he did was he revolutionized how error messages should look. We are used to seeing error messages that sound like they should be read by a Dalek. Something yeah. like, it's incredible, like integer out of range, whatever mm -hmm. that means. And mm -hmm. it won't tell you what the problem is. It won't tell you what the integer is. It won't tell you what the range is. It'll just say that. Python, yeah. which is meant to be a beginner programming language, is horrific for this. So Elm comes along and when it, you go an error, it gives you a really readable page of English showing your code, showing exactly what's wrong and why it's wrong. And it's beautiful. I've, I've never thought there was such a thing as a beautiful error message until I saw this. And then I realized how much better our world would be, how much better programming would be if error messages looked like this. So now languages like Rust, uh, the very popular, increasingly popular language out of Mozilla, took that on board and they've made their error messages look like that. But most don't. And it's so it's not just about the bug failure, about the apostrophe. It's about how we find those errors, how they get reported upwards mm -hmm. in a way that they can actually be acted on. Yeah, um, that's why I think it's interesting yeah. that you say that the tools are also part of the problem mm. because developers and bugs is like, they go hand in hand. It's one of the right. age old problems of being a developer. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there are so many different solutions that specifically help developers code better, code faster, yes. code more efficiently. Many different kinds, launch darkly included. So I think it's interesting mm -hmm. that um, you say that the tools are also the problem. Why do you think that is? If these tools are, there are so many that are supposed to help developers. Because I think that most of them, unfortunately, come from an environment. I think this is a systemic problem in all meanings of the word, in that we have been, we developers have been trained on really badly designed tools. Mm -hmm. And then we don't raise our expectations. Mm -hmm. We're used to that. We think that's part of the training. We think that's part of the culture is that you should be able to think through bugs without needing to use a debugger that actually works. And these days, my attitude is since discovering how much time a good debugger can save, and I think there are very few genuinely good debuggers out there. Once realizing that, it really changed my expectations of what tools should be doing. There's an amazing talk that a lot of people refer to now, and I really recommend watching the video for this. A guy called Brett Victor who's become a hero in certain parts of programming. He was an interface designer at Apple for a long time. Not just interface, he came up with all kinds of amazing things. And he gave a talk in 2013 called Inventing on Principle. And sometimes you see demos that 
have tools that are so amazing you want you find yourself clawing at the screen to get this thing that is in the demo it's like i want this right now this would make my life so much yeah. better truly great demos do that this is a truly great demo inventing on principle has some of the best product demos i've ever seen because mm-hmm. it totally changes your opinion of what tools can do for you as a programmer in terms of how immediate they should give feedback for something going wrong or how immediate they should let you play it changes the thing the th- real light when you see what tools could be doing in ARM, when you start to look at error messages, we, we, instead of accepting error messages that are phrased as integer out of range, so it's being phrased in Dalek speak, but actually say, you know what, you could put this in English. You could actually tell me what the problem is. There's information you're not giving me. You start to realize that it, a lot of it is laziness and understandable laziness. I don't want to blame people who are under huge pressure to create complex systems. But there is a laziness there that these systems should be telling us more about why things are failing. Now, it's... And so I think there's huge potential for many different kinds of tools. Launch Darkly, I'm putting it for my employer. Also, but, but feature flagging in general, not just Launch Darkly feature flags. Mm-hmm. Any feature flagging system can be really useful for helping you... Um, both turn off, off and on features when there are bugs. So you can, you know, it means you can turn on a feature when you turn off a feature when you discover there's a bug in it. You can turn on a feature gradually to find bugs without exposing everybody to them. Mm-hmm. You can do things like control the level of logging in your app dynamically or control observation. There's actually, we're doing giving this talk, we're talking now, uh, it's Wednesday 9th of June when we're recording this, uh, if you don't mind me saying. Or we can edit that out if you want. But right now, there's something called ObservabilityCon or OlliCon. There's actually a talk, Conditional Distributed Tracing, by a guy called Will Sargent from Eero. Uh, sorry, I'm, I have this in the window over here. No? It, it, but it, the idea is that you should be able to dynamically change the amount of diagnostic data coming from your app without needing to restart it. So you can uh-huh. actually see what's happened. But it's ultimately, I think there's a cultural, there are major cultural issues and systemic issues. I think that as developers, we expect too little, but also we think of ourselves, there's this idea of power users. You ever heard the term power users? I don't think the power user is a real thing. I don't think it's a persona. I think, or rather, I don't think it's a type of person. We think of it as a type of person, but actually what it is is a type of motivation in that it's, and this is where you get typically sexist, ageist stuff coming up like grandmothers. I could teach my grandmother to do this, right? Now, I've met grandmothers who don't know how to configure their email, but they can absolutely kick your ass on And it comes down to, are you fully motivated to use this one system? I'm sure you have things, technical things, that you are way better at most people at using. But you don't might not think of yourself as a technical person. Mm-hmm. And so we developers, we somehow get taught that we are the masters of our domains, or we are the, the, the leaders who should understand these systems, who we, and we don't need nice interfaces. We don't need... Oh, and we do. UX design applies to everybody. Information design applies to everybody. And developers somehow thinking that they need to work with incredibly minimal systems and get very small amounts of information is so true. Unhealthy. Why do developers develop the ugliest things for themselves? Mm -hmm. (laughs) But most beautiful software for everyone else. The the beauty tends to come from designers rather than... It depends where you consider beauty. I think there's some beautiful stuff created by developers. And those things... Sorry, that was generalization there. And there's obviously great overlap between the two. But I think there are different cultures within computing. One that I really admire is in games programming, which in many ways is a hugely poisonous culture from the business end. But games programmers have become really good at building custom tools for themselves 
to work on individual parts of a game that they are making, right? And building visualizations and things like that. I think, honestly, a brilliant trick to be able to do is to write your own debugger for your system because you will need to debug it. I have never, I want to say debugger, I don't necessarily mean at a line by line code level, yeah. it is okay. fascinating Can we to-, to like a work, what's your best working definition of what a debugger actually does? A debugger is something that shows you information about the internal state of a system in such a way that you can solve problems. Okay. And this may be a transient thing because the trouble is that ch- state of a system changes over time. So ideally, a debugger should be able to show you a series of a time series of how something, ch- or you should have control to be able to move both forwards and backwards in a time series to be able to say, how did this change over time? Right? Now, a debugger doesn't necessarily, when it could, we tend to think about debuggers as debugging lines of code. It could yeah. be debugging something at a higher level in your system. It could be debugging user state. It could be whatever. But put it like this. I, the time I have put into writing debuggers for any system that I've been building has always paid off. Every single time. It's been worth the initial effort I put in. Because mm-hmm. it has ended up saving me multiple times and ended up paying off hugely in time saved when debugging things later. And this is something we see it often, the tools we see in game development are more about building than debugging, but there's often an element of debugging in there as well. Um, There's things, uh, and this is where in the previous episode I talked about the value of learning something different in university than computing. Yeah. And I think it is always fascinating to learn from other branches of engineering and to learn from other branches of uh, other disciplines entirely. Um, It's fascinating to see things like in data science where they're using Jupyter notebooks or the notebook format, which is this kind of series of live evaluated code where you type in command after command. That is hugely powerful that other parts of computing are now going, you know what, that's a really interesting idea. We should use that for other things. I think there are things to do with visualization, things to do with the different ways to bring information out of a system or to make it queryable this is what stuff like honeycomb is good at is to say you know what and and i think this is a a huge part of the power as well is that one of the reasons that developers try to be minimal about stuff is because we're used to dealing with systems that have very little memory or very little disk space and these days there's much more memory and disk space to play with So it's actually okay to be logging far more data as long as you've got a way to query it. And this is what Honeycomb does, is that they say, just give us huge reams of data from your system and we'll make it queryable. It's fine. And because it turns out that, because the trouble is that we tend to say, we're not going to save that data until we start needing it. And then we turn debug mode on. And at that point, it's too late. We've missed the bug that was. But if your system is continually logging that data, then you can go back in time. If that, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that makes sense. Then you can like, identify when you went wrong, is what you're saying, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. You want to yeah. be able to look at the past. The fact is that most bugs are really transient, and you need to... It, it's Most of the work in debugging, honestly, is coming up with a reproducible, coming up with a test case that reproduces the bug every time. There are so yeah. many bugs encountered, which just we can't come up with a repro. Because until you get a repro, you can't be sure that you fixed it. Yeah. Bugs. Mm. I feel like I yes. got it. I think I I feel like I have cracked open your little repository of bug information. 
Thank Taking you. a little bit, gotten into my brain. I'm ready. It's got this. <laughs> Feature flags. I understand now. Thank you so much Excellent. for helping. Thank you. Where can we find you and what you're working on online? So I work at LaunchDarkly as a solutions architect. I was also a developer advocate and did lots of videos for LaunchDarkly and do other involved in other things as well. I am on Twitter at my username is Y-O-Z or Y-O-Z. Yoz, three letters. Useful. Whoa. Um, yes. I was when very you, lucky. When I, did you get that? 2006. I, oh. yeah, I know. Yeah. Jumped in early. Nice. I also got Yoz.com as well in 1996. Ooh, nice. So I, is, I've been very Yoz lucky. Is Yoz not the name of... Uh, WordPress's SEO thing as well. Is it? I think so. I did. Yeah, I think it's called There's Yaz. So okay. Wow. You, you got it. Maybe one day they'll buy Maybe it one from the, you. <laughs> yeah, I occasionally get offers on it. I have yet to, you know, find one the right price. Yeah. Maybe. WordPress, good company. Um, uh, hit him up, his mm-hmm. Twitter handle. <laughs> oh, yeah. You gotta come to me, WordPress. Let, let's talk. I'm ready. All right. And Launch Darkly, we can find that at launchdarkly.com. Launch okay. Mm-hmm. One cool. word, Launch Darkly. All of that in the show notes. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you so much, Amy. If you like this episode of the Happening Podcast, like it, share it, subscribe to it, and don't forget to send it to your friends. This episode was edited by Audio Wizard Alex, hosted by me, Amy Tom, and produced by Hacker Noon. Thank you very much, and I will see you on the internet. Goodbye.